Welcome to Stoner. Uh, this week on the show, Eduardo Sanchez and Greg Hale from Haxon Films. You uh, may remember their first movie, The Blair Witch Project. I remember watching it while I was in high school and walking back across a largely urban area terrified. So uh, this was a great thrill to talk to them um, about their uh many decade creative partnership and the role that weed plays in it uh thanks to them for doing this you can always get in touch hi at stoner.co here's the show why don't you guys introduce yourselves and uh tell me where you're each calling from uh i'm greg hale i'm a filmmaker i'm ed sanchez's filmmaking partner in Haxon films and I'm uh, talking to you from Portland, Oregon. And I'm Ed Sanchez, the other half of Hacks and Films. And uh, Greg and I have been Hacks and Film partners for over 20 years now, which is hard to believe. Um, it's like this fever, feverish nightmare that we never can get out of. Um, and I'm calling you from Frederick, Maryland, just like a half hour away from where we shot most of uh, Blair Witch. Okay, so I want to talk to you guys about Blair Witch, but I want to even before that go back further. Uh, where did you each grow up? Were you guys smoking weed in high school? What were your first experiences around marijuana? Uh, uh, I grew up in uh, Henderson, Kentucky, and I, was, I wasn't like completely you know, straight-laced in high school, but... I didn't start drinking until I was 18, uh, and then I joined the Army, and when I was in the Army, I had a security clearance, and that kept one that was a pretty strong deterrent from smoking weed, but uh, as soon as I got out, like within like three days of getting out of the Army, I started smoking weed, because I, I, I <laughs> all my friends and stuff outside of the military uh, all smoked weed and I was very curious, so I, I, I did, uh, you know, smoked weed and, and dropped acid within a few days of getting out of the army. So, what? what how old were you, Greg? Twenty-three. Wow. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, that's. I, I, I never smoked weed in high school. I had friends who smoked, um, and I grew up in the suburb of DC, mostly a suburb of DC, Montgomery County, like a northern suburb of DC, and uh, I just never. I mean, I, I had this. I, I kind of. I was through my high school years. I drank a lot. I, I did drink, um, but you know, mostly just to like, get a buzz, and then you know, we'd overdo it, and you would, you know, it would just be. It was like high total high school drinking, like just binge drinking, and it was terrible, like horrible memories of drinking. And even to this day, like I don't drink that much. I think because of the fact that I overdosed so much on on alcohol, and uh, you know, it poisoned myself so much in high in high school. Um, and then the weed thing I didn't pick up until I guess I was like in my early twenties and, uh, we were in New York and we were showcasing this movie that I did called Gabriel's dream. And, and it just seemed like the right time. And, and, you know, and I started smoking. I never looked back. At what juncture in your life did you guys start working on the movie that would become uh, Blair Witch? Uh, Dan Myrick, uh, who we did the, the film with back in the day, and I went to film school along with Greg, but Greg was a couple years, uh, he was in a different class than us. So Dan and I were in the first class and we, 
became friends and started talking about, you know, just film stuff. And uh, we were started talking about horror movies and we kind of gravitated toward the same group of horror movies that we liked as kids, especially this, these movies that were kind of like pseudo documentaries, like uh, that show in search of with Leonard Nimoy, that was like a common, you know, interest for us. And we wondered like, could you do that again? you know, to a modern audience, you know, but we were in film school. And like I said, you know, I had Gabriel's dream, Dan had other things and we were trying to do other things. So the idea just kind of percolated for a while. And then it really didn't start coming to fruition uh, until like 96 when Greg got involved, Dan got pitched it to Greg and Greg loved it. And um, he kind of started jumps. He jump started the idea at that point And we began to actually start casting and try to figure out the logistics of making the film. So it was early nineties when we first came up with the idea, but it wasn't until 96 that we really started kind of moving into production on it. At this point, this is like the mid nineties. I remember, uh, I remember this period and movie going, you guys were in college in uh, central Florida. Yeah. Like yep. what was the pathway for, anonymous people with a video camera to make a movie and get anyone to see it at that point. Um, this is so far pre YouTube, pre any kind of internet distribution, anything like what was your plan in, in shooting a movie at that point? The indie route was, was, you know, very much concentrated on the festival circuit, you know, get into a film festival, you know, that, that had them some exposure and a market component and sell it that way. Um, and you know, and we, and that was kind of our plan from the beginning. I mean, you know, in as much as we had a plan at first, the plan is just like, how do we make the movie at all? You know, Ed had made a feature, but it was, you know, extremely low budget. Um, you know, when we were trying to at first just make Blair Witch like a regular movie, you know, raise, you know, $350,000 and shoot it with a crew and, and everything would be kind of faked and shot like a regular movie uh, and it wasn't until later when we came up with the idea of kind of you know the survival school style you know let the actor shoot with video cameras thing happen you know that we figured out that we could you know actually shoot at least what we thought was going to be part of the movie for you know twenty two thousand dollars at the time I have heard a rumor about Blair Witch that I hope you can either confirm or deny, which is that uh, the finished product is about 50% of the intended uh, framing of the movie and that uh, there was like stuff that was going to be like sort of a framing TV show and stuff that broke from the cameras that were just on the main actors. And that at some point there was a decision to just go with purely like this single path uh, through the story. Is that accurate? That's yeah, that is we uh, we we had like a, you know, because the movie was going to be like an episode of In Search Of, like it was going to be like a, you know, an hour and a half documentary about these three filmmakers that went into the woods to uncover the, you know, the mysteries of the Blair Witch. And then they disappeared. Their footage was found. And then there was this whole investigation led by uh, by Heather's mother. Uh, once she got the footage from the police and then she hired us hacks and films to make a documentary and she hired detectives and this, so that, that was going to be the movie It's just talking to family members and investigators and detectives and everything. And, uh, and we actually shot that. We actually shot a lot of that 
which was called the fa- it was like phase two. And that's the stuff we mostly shot in Orlando and the surrounding area. Um, we, you know, we did like a newsreel from the 1940s for like this serial killer named Rustin Parr that was part of the mythology. And we did all these things that kind of filled in the mythology. And then during the editing process, uh, the foot, the footage from the woods, you know, we never thought that we were just going to be, a, that that was going to be the film. We thought it, you know, that people weren't going to sit through shaky footage of like, you know, a home movie basically of these people in the woods. Um, but you know, so we started inserting the documentary stuff and we did like a, like a very conventional kind of going back and forth approach and it, you know, going from the fat, from the footage in the woods to the documentary stuff, it didn't work. We then decided that we were going to put, do like a five or, you know, four or five minute little bumper at the beginning of the movie that kind of explained or gave you a little bit of background as far as like the legend and the case and all that stuff. And then we were going to throw you into the, into the footage. And in the end, you know, it was like, it was a tough decision for us, but it was right before we entered Sundance and we had like whittled it down to like, what was it like three minute, a little three minute intro, Greg. And then the movie started and, um, we were just, we were kind of, uh, you know, trying to figure it out. Yeah, huh? We had to, I think we had two up until the very end. I think there was always two cuts. There was, there was your cut that was a little more minimalist with the non kid stuff. And then I think, you know, I think Dan's cut, you know, still had more of that footage in. So I think the debate up until the very end was like, first of all, which cut? And then did, did we like the cut at all with the, with the non kid stuff in it? Yeah. This is like, um, I rewatched a bit of the movie, which I had not seen since I was 17 years old when it terrified me. And it makes the movie very modern. Like the movie doesn't age like a 90s movie because there's no movie to really age other than the the primary footage. Um, In that instance and going forward, like in you guys' creative partnership, that's like a really hard decision to make to throw out that much work, money, life. Like, what do you do when you come to like really hard decisions like that? And especially when you realize that you can make do something really bold uh, by making a perhaps counterintuitive decision. Well, you know, we should we should give uh, some props to one of our executive producers, Kevin Fox. Was was actually I think the first person that I remember saying that it should just be the footage of the filmmakers. Um, you know, and I remember at first all of us were like, are you crazy? <laughs> yeah. Get out uh, of here. <laughs> you know, you know, for, for those exact reasons that you're talking about, like we had like sunk all this time and, and money, like we had spent more money on the phase two stuff at that point than we had on the stuff of just the filmmakers. I think, um, I think we just, we, we looked at it kind of creatively and it wasn't like, oh my gosh, if we do it, if we do just the footage of the kids, it, it'll be this stroke of genius. It was more like it that at least works and the stuff with the documentary pieces or the setup or whatever we were at at that time simply didn't work so it was just it was a little pragmatic at a certain point we're like well we have a version that at least works somewhat so let's at least submit that to sundance and see what happens yeah i mean i mean i I think that the one of the main arguments that i remember was something you said greg which was that at that point you know we knew we had a cool movie 
you know, we were, you know, we, we, the few people that had seen it reacted well to it. Um, you know, we knew we had something that, you know, hadn't been, you know, hadn't been done in a while, at least. I mean, you know, we never, we couldn't even remember the last time somebody had done something like this. So it was, uh, you know, we knew we had something cool, but it was just like, are people going to understand it enough? Like if we just show the footage, are people going to understand that there's a mythology and all this stuff? And we kept telling ourselves that's going to limit, you know, our commercial, you know, the, the little commercial appeal that this movie might have it's going to be ruined if we take out, you know, the kind of the explanation and Greg, I think late in that, I remember we were at the office in Orlando, downtown Orlando. And we were like, just, um, talking about, you know, where we're going to do this. And I was like the day, the night before we had to, you know, ship it out. And, and he said, look, you know, no matter what happens, the, the three minute, you know, little segment at the beginning of the movie is not going to help us compete with like, real horror movies or real Hollywood movies. I mean, we don't have that, you know what I'm saying? And we all were like, yeah, you know, he's right. And I think that was the thing where it was like, look, it's no matter what we do this movie, it's not going to be, you know, for Friday the 13th or nightmare on Elm street or a movie that, you know, a typical kind of horror movie that people are expecting no matter what we do to it. So we may as well show it in its raw form. And if it works, it works. And if not, then that's, you know, that's the way it is. What has it been like in the uh, intervening, uh, what are we, 25 years um, as like found footage goes from being like a unique one off to like a bit of a trend in horror filmmaking to now, I would say, with people filming with phones, looking into the phone, the sort of centrality of the like smartphone as the primary filming uh, device and the YouTube social media world that like these kinds of visual ideas are like everywhere. Now they, they're like the most dominant, uh, force. Uh, has that, has that been something that's been fun to watch? You know, I, I a lot of it was, you know, was just the timing, you know, I think yeah. we were, we just kind of happened to be one of the first groups of filmmakers to kind of use what was becoming a more and more dominant, visual language but it's it's such a prevalent it's such a prevalent part of everything that i don't know i don't even really think about it as happening separate from the rest of reality in terms of like you know it being something that's inherently filmic or related to film because it's just a part of every of, of everything right it's just it's it's hard to separate the two and now it's just become like a form of human communication, you know, even though Greg and I grew up in the seventies and eighties, like, you know, the super eight camera was still was something that we grew up with, you know, not that you could shoot a bunch of stuff, but we were, my dad had a super eight camera. So it wasn't like we were free to just shoot video all the time. Like, you know, people shoot now on their phones, but we, you know, we knew that kind of sensibility of the handheld thing. And, and that's what, in, you know, in search of was a show from the seventies. So you know, that, that that was already there. But yeah, but now since, you know, now everybody has a video camera. So now it's become, you're right. It's like, it's just part of the, it's, it's part of the language of humanity now. Yeah. I mean, I was, th- I've always thought that the biggest, probably the biggest direct influence on Blair Witch visually was Cops. Because Cops had been out for not that long when we made Blair Witch, a couple of years, maybe a year or so. Um and and I was I was mesmerized by cops when it first came out because there had never been a show like that that just like 
jumped into the action. There wasn't any setup. It was just you're in a car with a cop and then, you know, weird cop shit happens. Cops is also timeless where a cops from 20 years ago and a cops today, other than like the outfits, it could yeah, be anything. Stuff. Yeah, they're still doing exactly the same yeah. stuff. Well, and the, and, the, and the great, yeah, and Greg's right because the great thing about cops, which is something that we like inherently wanted to bring in in the, to Blair Witch, was the idea that like sometimes the 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 things are kind of boring. It's just a guy who's drunk and hey, get in your house and he talks a little shit and then goes back. You know, it's like yeah. just a boring little because that's part of life. That's part yeah. of being a cop. Sometimes a lot of things it's just bullshit. You know, taking care of people and whatever. And we, we, we real, you know, in Blair Witch, we realize that not all of it can be a horror film. A lot of it, it just has to be like these mundane little bits of them doing, you know, eating or, you know, taking a leak or going to bed and stuff like that. So I think that we, you know, I think that we took that from cops. Well, it's not just the mundaneness. It's also the tension that builds. Like when you're watching something like cops where you're like, you're going to have three or four mundane ones. And then one of these dudes is going to jump in his car (laughs) and run and you're going to see a car chase. You know, there's that coiled belief that like violence could erupt at any moment that sort of makes cops a tense show, even though it's mostly d- domestic disturbances. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And that, and that's, and that's, and that's kind of the same thing that works about the horror aspect of Blair. I mean, you know, and everybody says this, nothing really happens in Blair. Nothing really <laughs> in the movie, right? It's all just, it's all just the tension of when, when is something going to happen? And there's something actually out in the woods. And it's like you're saying, that's exactly what, what cops does. Is well, like, this, is I mean, this was the Seinfeld era. Like um, nothing ever happening was big in the nineties. It was like an accepted <laughs> cultural trend. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, so you guys have got done a string of horror movies since then. You did a segment for uh, VHS too, which I remember seeing. Um, you did a Bigfoot movie. Were you, when you set off doing this and you had this giant success for your first movie, had you guys been dreaming of doing horror movies or is this just like where you landed? I think it's a little, I think it's a little bit of both. And I think Ed's, Ed's and I's answer are a, a little different on this. You know, I always wanted to make Star Wars, right? That's what I grew up wanting to do. Uh, but I always really loved horror films. In fact, probably my earliest, you know, film memories that I can think of that really had an impact on me before Star Wars were, were probably all horror films um you know with some sci-fi thrown in there but mostly horror so for me to have a you know to have the lucky break of of having a a hit movie that happened to be a horror film and kind of painted us into the horror corner i I didn't really mind it i'm you know i was fine making horror movies and still fine making horror movies because it's you know it's a genre that i that i really like i always have like yeah, for, for for me it was a little different. I mean, I I definitely uh, you know I liked I liked horror movies, but I'm you know I I, did, I didn't really like enjoy being scared, you know, and I still don't. Same. Um, yeah. So so I think uh, now you know I, I watch horror movies because you know I have to. It's like you know I have to keep up with what's going on. But I you know there's very rarely a time where I go into a horror movie that I'm looking forward to. You know, especially one that I know, that people are saying is scary because I don't like that shit. <laughs> so I came up at it more from, you know, like I wanted to make, you know, Steven Spielberg movies. I wanted to make, you know, Star Wars. I wanted to make action movies, like comedies that, you know, horror movies really were like one of the last things I wanted to do. But I, but I did love horror movies. I did love certain, you know, Jaws and Exorcist, The Shining. They're my, you know, some of my favorite movies ever of all time. So they, you know, I definitely loved them. But, uh, and then once, so once we did Blair Witch, 
you know, it took a while to kind of figure out, you know, what we needed to do next. And, uh, but, I, but I'm kind of like Greg, like I, I, you know, I, I, I'm very appreciative of being, if I, if we are stuck, I'm appreciative of being stuck in the horror genre because I have learned to really love writing and being part of, of horror movies and ho- trying to scare people and just building this genre. I really am proud of the work we've done. I, I love the fact, like what Greg was saying is the idea that like, you know, there's horror movies is like the most diverse genre you can get into. So it does open you up to a lot of other different kinds of filmmaking uh, where, you know, other like other genres, like if you're stuck in comedy, you're kind of, you know, you kind of have to stay in the comedy realm, you know, in horror, there's so many different subgenres that it does make being stuck, there is a freeing, you know, quality to the genre that, that I always enjoyed. It also seems like in the last couple of years, horror is increasingly a way for small movies to break into like big mainstream pop cultural release, like stuff like get out. Um, some of the bigger movies have at least sort of come out of the general horror pool. It seems like something where there's actually maybe like still a little more of a democratic, uh, sensibility about people just going out and seeing stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some of that is some of that I think is the, you know, the, the quality of movie I think is different. I think, I think horror films recently, I think are really interesting and really varied and, and I think really good. And they're not necessarily like, you know, there was definitely a time when if it was a horror movie, you just kind of assumed that it was going to be cheesy and look bad. Um, you know, and then, and then a big part of it too is Blumhouse is Jason Blum and Blumhouse. They've, those guys have pretty much single-handedly changed the math, you know, the, the financial aspect, the economics of horror filmmaking, because all these big hits or most of these big hits that you're talking about are all from them. Yeah. It's really, I'm just basically talking about a string of like hits all from the same source similar yeah. hits, similar budgets. Um, yeah. So you guys primarily out now are coming up with concepts, developing them, pitching them, whether it's film, TV. Uh, I understand uh, that at some point, uh, marijuana has played some role in your creative process and developing ideas. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, there's always... There's always this thing about, you know, because some of the stuff, I mean, marijuana does help you think of things in different ways and it puts yeah. you in a, you know, your mind in a different mood, you know, and you can't come up with, you know, really great stuff, but you can also come up with a lot of stupid stuff. <laughs> so there's always this level of like, you know, coming up with ideas when you're high and then you write it down and you're like, you know, you don't want to tell anybody until you're all, you know, you're done and you can kind of the next day look at the idea and say, all right, that's a cool idea or that that's ridiculous. Um, what kind of a working style do you find like your best ideas come from? Like, is there like a consistent source of like these kinds of moments like deliver for me? For a long time, it was, it was pretty informal uh, and now we've even kind of we've kind of formalized it a little bit, but just basically, you know, doing what stoners do, right? I mean, that's that's kind of the am- amazingly lucky thing about being a horror filmmaker is like the direct pipeline from general stoner bullshit to something that you can make money on. You know, you're just sit, you just get stoned and sit around and think of stupid shit and talk about stupid shit and. Um, you know, in, in our case, we're able to like translate some of that stuff into horror ideas and do something with it when we're not stoned. 
is it liberating um like not holding your ideas so tightly like kind of loosening your grip over your own work and kind of saying like yeah whatever happens if this gets picked up yes if not like it was a fun idea because i feel like as a younger person i used to hold everything i was doing so tightly that it almost always felt like a failure yeah well the failure thing i think never goes away at least it has it for me it's just like putting the that feeling of failure behind you quick enough to move on to the next idea but then the struggle the struggle for me uh, you know turns into because i'm the like, like you're saying aaron like like you know when you were a younger creative you would kind of latch onto an idea and just like pour everything into that idea yeah and if someone and, criticized it you'd be like how dare you my whole life is in this idea right? <laughs> yeah yes yeah so it's it's kind of dangerous in in on that regard but at the same time it's like that kind of like obsessiveness is what allows you to get shit done. You know, like there was many, many times in the process of making, you know, Blair Witch or any other thing really that we've made where you could have said, okay, well, we're done because X, Y, or Z didn't happen. And you just kind of keep going because you are holding on to that idea. So it's just the finding that balance of when do you really hold on to something and try to see it through and when do you say okay next idea that's that i think becomes more of the challenge than just holding on to the idea itself yeah and I, and I think for us and i we've talked about this is like the the big challenge is like cataloging ideas you know like that's really something that we don't do at all and i think we've got to be a little more responsible about like just keeping you know these these ideas in some kind of form where we can go back to them because you know, if we can catalog our ideas better there, you never know what could come back and, you know, into this fashion or something, an idea we had 10 years ago, all of a sudden is timely or somebody else is doing something similar and we can kind of jump on and, and get some momentum on it. So you never know, but a lot of the stuff kind of just, you know, especially with me, I'm, I'm super lazy. So I kind of just, it just <laughs> drifts off and it's gone. And then I'm, you know, uh, I'm on to the next star Wars thing that I need to collect and that's the end of it. So. Uh, Greg, you live in Portland. Um, you have lived there uh, uh, from before legalization uh, through marijuana legalization. What's it like? What's it like to witness locally? Uh, it's well, first of all, it's it's so weird how civilized it is, you know, because even, well, it's Portland. I mean, it's a well, very no, civilized just, town. <laughs> it is a very civilized town, but I mean, just it, you know, legalization in general, whether it was like. You know, because Washington was legal for about a year or so before us. So, you know, you could, you know, drive across the the bridge and, and, and get weed in Washington. And um, uh, and then, you know, Ed and I went, went to Colorado and actually did like a little, you know, working vacation specifically because we could, you know, get stuff from dispensaries. But it's just weird how civilized it is when you can just go into a store and pick out what you want. And and it's and for somebody who's, you know, who's been buying weed for a pretty long time, even if when you're not buying it from some sketchy dude and you have a good relationship with the guy that you're buying from, it's always it was always a little weird. Yeah. Um, and and so it's still like I'm only just now it's been a couple of years now, I guess, that it's been legal. And I'm only just now getting used to the idea of like walking into the store and 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 uh, getting it. It's just it's it's. And, and it, it just takes a while for the skeeviness to, to 
to go away. Like, like, like California still feels skeevy. Like I just went to a, a recreational place in LA last time we were in LA and because it's just starting, it still feels kind of skeevy. Yeah. LA has you know? got a weird, weird, like, uh, it reminds me of like a Chinese restaurant with like a bulletproof piece of glass. Like I don't, I don't understand why that's the dominant aesthetic of Los Angeles dispensaries, but it's, it's unified. Yeah. Yeah. I think, yeah. The dude who, who checks your thing looks like a, you know, a bouncer at a club. Like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's bizarre. That so that's been the that's been the biggest shift is just the getting used to it not being sketchy anymore. Uh, Ed in Maryland, what did you have to do to to become a medical patient? You know, you go to a, to a certain doctor that's you know licensed to do that or whatever, and uh, you go and you I brought you know you have you know you have to prove that you have some kind of you know applicable condition. So I. Uh, I'm on, uh, you know, antidepressants. So I took that, my prescription. I said, I'm, you know, this is what I'm taking. I, weed is, you know, help me or whatever. And they check out, you got to check off certain boxes or whatever. And then you get your card and you can go to the dispensary with the card. And you know, obviously you have a limit as how much you can buy and stuff, but it's quite a big limit. I mean, I, you know, I'd have to have a serious habit to, to even go near that limit, but it's just great, and then they open up one up like literally like five minutes from my house. So it's uh, and it's run really well. It's expanding. It seems to have good management, which like what Greg was saying is like you know that's this you know some of these places you're like still has this really really seedy kind of quality to them. So it's good that you know it's finally come here, and you know and and I think legalization is hopefully just a few years away. Um, for both of you, since you're both, uh, have access, you're in a very lucky, uh, two state combination to both have access to some form of uh, legal marijuana. Does it feel different to you? Um, now that it's legal, like in terms of being like a person with children who, uh, enjoys marijuana, like does the fact that you bought this from like a retail establishment down the street change it at all for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. But, uh, it, it totally changes and it changes the conversation that you have with your kids, you know, where now the conversation isn't, you know, why are you breaking the law dad versus like, why should I wait and do this until later? Right. Those are two, you know, very different conversations. So if you take that, you know, you're breaking the law aspect off the table, then the conversation can be what it really should be with your kids, which is like, how do you use this thing responsibly? Not, it's wrong because there's a law against it. So that's, that's been huge for me. And, you know, Ed's, Ed's kids are a little older than mine, but, you know, I'm just now, you know, starting to transition into that part, you know, in their lives where you gotta, you gotta start having those conversations. And it's just so much easier to have that conversation when that law part is, is gone. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, I think that the, you know, I would much rather be having this, discussion or you know issues that have to deal with marijuana than you know than being an alcoholic or you know having a you know uh you know some kind of alcoholic abuse you know i think you know like it's just i mean not not to say that uh you know that weed isn't uh you know that shouldn't it shouldn't be regulated in some way and obviously should be kept away from kids of certain age or whatever but you know i it just it's just such a less destructive you know, form of whatever you, you know, whether it's recreational or medicinal, it's, it's just so less destructive than alcohol is, you know? And I think that 
hopefully the, our kids realize that, you know, that, that there is, uh, it's not the same thing as alcohol, you know, uh, even though alcohol is legal. So you guys are both living within driving distance of legal marijuana. Um, have you guys become like connoisseurs at all? Like what has, <laughs> um, what has better access led you to as consumers? You know, to me, it, it boils down to a lot of like, like knowing sativa versus indica or a blend and then the CBD to THC and the amount of each and the ratio of each and like figure, I mean, because before, you know, you either bought, hopefully you bought good weed or you bought cheap ass yeah. weed and that's kind of it. Like Seeds I got or no seeds, pretty much. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the choice. <laughs> so that was kind of it. Like it was either generally good weed or generally bad weed and you didn't really know much more than that but now you can kind of be like oh well what kind of mood am i in and like you know what blend or what combination of different factors is you know better for a party or better for chilling out or better for being intimate with someone <laughs> say. Ah, wow i didn't realize ah, i was gonna go there aha pulled that one out of left field um so i think that's been the biggest thing for me is just like you know actually being able to like i guess like anything from a hamburger to a bottle of wine or a beer or whatever. It's just like once things are a little more organized and upfront, you can kind of like pick and choose what works for you a little better. Ed, have you uh, discovered any gourmand tendencies? You know, I mean, it's funny because like, usually I'm just like, ale. <laughs> uh, That's kind of my attitude also. Yeah, but but it, but I do, you know, like Greg said, it's like there's there's definitely, you know, I'm very much I'm much more educated, and you know, I love the fact that I can choose from different ways to, you know, to take it in. I mean, there's just, you know, there's just so much variety now. But yeah, most of the time, I'm just kind of saying, going in there, say, what's you know, what's kind of, what's good, and what's also are you trying to get rid of that, you know, that I might be able to get a deal on. Um, <laughs> The variety is really what I love is the idea that you could do tincture or you can do edibles, you can do, you know, wax, uh, oil. I mean, it's just, you know, that, that to me is like kind of, is, is cool. And, you know, even lotions now, man, like, to, like medicinal lotion, like, Wait, what are you like, doing oh, with this lotion, Ed? What are you doing? Yeah, with this no, I, I haven't, I haven't done it, but I've heard of it. And I was thinking of, you know, <laughs> it, you know, Greg, you were talking about, you know, being intimate, you know, maybe the lotion, you know, uh, I don't know, we're, we're getting a little crazy there. But, you know, I, I just love the fact that now it's finally, it's open enough to, you know, that people are developing it and, and the way it should have been developed fucking years ago. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And this is only the beginning. Think about yeah, where it's, it's going to be another decade from now. Yeah, exactly. So it's an exciting time. At the end of the show, I like to ask uh, the guests all the same question. Uh, I'm going to ask a few questions. The first question is, uh, what is your favorite way to enjoy marijuana? What is your ritual? What is it? Edibles? Is it smoking? Is it a specific place? Uh, what do you like? Okay. I really have come to enjoy just kind of like the the ease and efficiency and predictability of a commercially produced edible, I got to say. Yeah. Um, but in terms of just like the sitting down with some other people and having weed, I, I think a bong is hard to beat. Just it's kind of like, you know, eating sushi or dim sum or like 
foods that like take a lot of process are kind of fun just because there's a process. And a bong is kind of the same thing. The whole thing of loading the bong and the noise and the passing and all that kind of stuff. I just love that the whole aesthetic of smoking weed out of a bong. Ed? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, socially speaking, definitely the idea of, you know, a bong or uh, a pipe sometimes. Um, you know, it, it varies for me because I have a, I have a Magic Flight vape box. Uh, and I, uh, I've been using it for years and on and off. Like sometimes I get tired of it. I stop using it. But I still enjoy that. And then I just enjoy a lot, like, you know, just putting a little bit in, uh, into a pipe and just, uh, you know, just quickly smoking it, you know. Um, and, uh, I haven't really gotten into the edibles yet. Like I've, I haven't found the right combination of that, you know, that, that gets me in a place where I like that. I like to be, you know, I'm still, I'm still experimenting with that, but, uh, that, that sounds cool to me. Do you have a preference on the Indica sativa spectrum? Definitely more sativa because I can, you know, I can relax pretty easily. I think the, the Indica is kind of, uh, you know, I mean, obviously late in the day is fine, but yeah, the, the, the indica is definitely, if it's really strong, I'll, you know, I'm going to definitely end up sedated somewhere. So, uh, just to kind of get me going and get, get me active, I, I enjoy the, the sativa blends much more. Um, I'm wondering if you could each tell me, uh, a place anywhere in this world does not need to be weed related at all. Uh, that is special to you, a place that you come back to or that you have really strong memories of. I have a, actually a, a shared place with you, Ed, um, uh, which is uh, Skywalker Ranch. Ed, oh, well, yes, of course, yes. Ed, Ed and I, Ed and I mixed a couple of movies at uh, Skywalker Ranch, and that's definitely one of my favorite places on Earth for sure. That's in Northern California. Yeah, Marin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, yeah, definitely. I'd have to agree on that one. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. The uh, just a, such a great vibe, and we actually have never partaken of uh, marijuana at Skywalker, uh, but still, it's, uh, it's still like it. surely, still, some, surely someone has though. Yeah, surely yeah. some someone has, of course. Uh, I'm wondering if you could each recommend a snack, your favorite snack. I like uh, uh, smoked almonds. Like, uh, I think that's a really great snack. That is a good snack. Um, favorite snack. Wow. Um, grapes. <laughs> Your grape fan. Give me a chance. Give me a chance, Ed. Um, <laughs> I like chi- I like chips and guac. Oh yeah. That's a little involved snack, especially yeah. if you want to make it. Yeah, but once you've put the work in, it's worth it. That's true. We're going to make some guac this afternoon, as a matter of fact. I'm looking forward to that. It sounds like Portland. This sounds like Portland. And have an IPA. Yes. Okay, this one's going to be tough for you guys because it's in your own field. But uh, I'm wondering if you could each recommend a stoned viewing experience, movie or TV. Very memorable thing you've watched while stoned. Mm. Oh, my God. I just watched last night the original Mad Max. Original? Yeah. Holy shit, man. Like, have you seen that lately? I mean, I started rewatching it after Fury Road came out, but I don't think I finished it. It's a tough watch, man. (laughs) I mean, you know, the action sequences are still great, but like, damn, man, like, it's just really kooky. I I had forgotten how kooky it was. And and that was, I was blasted too. Uh, But my, my wife was not, and she was, she thought it was very kooky as well, so. 
I don't know. That's that's a tough one. I mean, the way that weed works for me with like with movies is like, uh, first of all, watching movies stoned is is one of like watching a movie is like one of my favorite things to do while stoned because it kind of allows me to to stop analyzing the movie and just enjoy it. Yeah. Even if if, if I see a movie and I'm not stoned and I like it, I almost always go back and watch it stone just so that i have that experience of not thinking about well how they set that shot up and i've heard that from a few filmmakers like people who are involved in the film industry that like at a certain point your uh, urge to dissect movies like cuts in the way of enjoying watching new movies and that sometimes yes. smoking weed can like cut through that a little bit yep. yeah that's exactly right that's exactly right for me so it would be hard to say like what's one of my favorite you know i would say any movie that any movie that I like that's not heavy, you know, like I wouldn't want to watch. I don't think Apocalypse Now Stone would be that pleasant, or or Elizabeth Stone, or, or yeah, or or like Terms of Endearment. Yeah, yeah. What's but, your but like platonic ideal of like a movie that's like right in the right sort of tonal atmosphere for stoned watching for you? Uh, District Nine, uh, you know, action, a little otherworldly uh intense you know so that you can get you know because i like i like being scared in movies and having tension work on me in movies and i definitely i don't know if it's just like general emotional openness or that's you know i don't really get paranoid when i get stoned unless i get really super duper stoned and then i'm in a weird situation but i do think that you know there's that little bit of paranoia that comes with with being stone that that works well when you're watching a movie that's supposed to have some tension like oh shit like what if that happened to me i'd be fucked <laughs> okay my final question uh what is one thing that you are still looking forward to in life looking out over uh, the vast expanse of what you have ahead of you uh i well i mean as far as like work you know i would love to get a for us to get a TV show going, Greg and I doing a TV show together. One of the ones that we're pitching, like I very much look forward to that. Yes. I think, yeah, professionally, I think remaining hopeful that that's going to happen, like, and looking forward to it, assuming that it is going to happen, I would agree. And then, you know, equal parts terror and, you know, the anticipation of joy is just like watching your kids go through life and, and like, you know, can't wait to see what, you know, stupid shit they get up to, basically. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much for this interview. I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, man. It was fun. And that was Stoner, uh, edited and co-produced by Justine Dom. You can always get in touch with us. Hi at stoner.co. I have a new episode for you every week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>